The year was 1968, and in 1968, there was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Spencer Silver. Uh, Dr. Silver worked for the Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing Company, and he was there, and he was set out to develop some sort of super strong adhesive. Well, he goofed. Instead of a super strong adhesive, he invented this low-tact, reusable, pressure-sensitive adhesive. And, and 3M now had no use for it. So they had a solution, but they had no problem to solve. Move along about five years, and in 1973, 3M, as it had been known, at that, as it become known by that time, hired a man by the name of Art Fry to work in product development. Fry would soon sit through a seminar with Dr. Silver, and as he sat through the seminar, he would learn of this invention that was created, but they, they had no use for. Well, one day at church, finding himself, there's no hymnal up here, finding himself at church with his choir hymnal and having lots of pieces of paper in it, once again, the paper all fell out of his choir book, and he was frustrated, and then Eureka, it hit him. What if, what if there was some sort of substance that you could put on the paper and you could stick it in your book? See, great things happen at church. You can put it in your book, and when you take it off, it doesn't rip the paper. So the next day, he goes to work on the Monday, and Fry starts experimenting with this sticky stuff that was created by Dr. Silver in 1968 with paper, and eventually he started leaving notes in his boss's office with this paper. And then seven years later, in 1980, the rest of the world would be introduced to what we know as post-it notes. Well, Scripture technically doesn't have post-it notes in it, although some of your Bibles I've seen, and they do have post-it notes in it. But technically it doesn't have post-it notes. But we do have what I would call some postman parchments. These books are small, fast and quick to read, but they contain powerful messages for us that will both impact and challenge us. And, challenge us. and I want to spend the next five or six weeks not looking at the book of Philemon alone, but looking at some of these books. So if you turn into your, into your Bibles, into the book of Philemon, that would be a great start. But let's begin in prayer. Father, we thank you for your love and your goodness in our lives. We thank you for the longer books in Scripture and the shorter books in Scripture. We thank you that even today, written so many years ago, that they still have an impact in our lives. They challenge us in our everyday walk, and they speak to the needs of our culture and to our lives. Father, as we turn to your word this morning, help us to push aside all the crowded thoughts of the last week and the week to come to focus on your word. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. So, Philemon. Oh, that's what I hit. Oh, they're smudged up with fingerprints. Sorry. Hey, they look a lot like mine. <laughs> you got good taste. Okay. Back to where we Oh, the book of Philemon. The book of Philemon was written in Rome by Paul well, in his first imprisonment, and it was written about 61 A.D. 
It was written about the same time that the book of Ephesians and Colossians were written. And we know this because those three letters were sent out by Tychus and Onesimus, one of the key figures in Philemon. So while we've turned to Philemon, and I hope you found it, it was tucked away two-thirds of the way through the New Testament, right after Titus and right before Hebrews, I want us to begin reading in verses 1. We'll just look at 1 through 3. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, not to throw you off, I want you to look down the bottom of the page or turn over the page if you have to, to verses 23 through 25. Starting in 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. See, too often we go through the introduction and then we go through the greetings and we just skip through these names ever so quickly without ever knowing who they are, which is really unfortunate. Some of these individuals that I just read off, some of these people suffered greatly for the faith. They went before us and they've given us the great heritage that we know in the church. We can all too, far, all too often skip over their names. I want us to look at those this morning because their lives challenge us in our walk with the Lord. Now, Onesimus is a center character in this book. So for this morning, we are going to set Onesimus aside. We'll come back to him next week. And then next we come across, probably one of the other ones would be Philemon. Philemon we're also going to set aside, but we're going to set him aside for 38 minutes, and then we'll come back to him. Okay, so that leaves us with Aphia, our sister. This is the only mention of her in all of Scripture. She appears to be connected, if you look at the verses again, she appears to be connected to the household. So look at verse 1 and verse 2 again. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Well, I can't give you absolute proof from Scripture. Most theologians would subscribe to, as you look at that verse and how it's put together, that Philemon's the master of the household, so he's the husband. Aphia would appear to be his wife, and Archippus would appear to be his son. So we have Philemon, Archippus, or Philemon, Ephesus, Archippus, in your house the church meets. So there seems to be a connection with those. That's, that's all we really know of, uh, of Ephesus. Now Archippus, he is mentioned here, and he's mentioned in Colossians. So this morning, if you have a piece of paper or a sticky note with you, or a post-it note, If not, you're going to have to use your finger. Keep your finger in Philemon because we're going to be there a few times, but turn over to to, uh, Colossians. 
We're going to start in Colossians chapter 4, but we're going to be in a couple of places in Colossians this morning. And I will warn you right up front, most of what I read will be ESV, but once in a while I'm going to flip over to the NLT just for clarification. And I'm going to start with that when I go into Colossians 4, verses 16 and 17. After you have read this letter, so the letter of Colossians, pass it on to the church at Laodicea so they can read it too. And you should read the letter I wrote them. And say to Archippus, be sure to carry out the ministry the Lord gave you. So what do we know about Archippus? Well, we know Archippus is called a fellow soldier by Paul. That's a type of bond that's gained in the arena of war. That's the type of bond that you have that you know when you're on the battlefield, someone else has got your back. But in this case, the battlefield is a spiritual battlefield. In the book of Colossians, he's mentioned here as we just read, and he's mentioned again, and he's encouraged to continue in the ministry the Lord gave him. So tradition links Archippus as a leader in the church of Laodicea. It's found about 10 miles northwest of Colossae, which would fit well with the letter that we have here because the church of Colossae was instructed to exchange the letter they got with the letter that was given to Laodicea. So one way or another, Archippus would have received the instruction from Paul to carry on. And I'm sure as he received those words of carry on, he was encouraged. I'm sure he looked at it and thought, hey, Paul sees me. He knows what I'm going through. He doesn't want me to give up. He has my back. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read something out of First Thessalonians. I had a tongue tie going this morning. 5 verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. All of us, I don't care who you are, all of us need encouragement. And here we see Paul encouraging a younger leader. Here we see Paul encouraging a younger man in the faith. See, when I think of all the people I have known in my life, I can divide them up into two categories. I can divide them up into what I call basement people and balcony people. I, I, I can think of those, they're the type of people that when you meet with them, they, they lift you up. They're the type of people that help you see above the ordinary. And I'm not talking about laying it on thick, and I'm not talking about false flattery, but I'm talking about real-life words of encouragement. And words of encouragement go a long ways in our life. They're there to help us walk through the times that are tough. They're there to help us face some of the things in life that aren't so pleasant. Then there are those basement people. Those people who drag you down when you're in their presence. They're the type of people that I think that would make A.A. A. A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh character Eeyore, well, they'd make Eeyore look happy. That's not the type of person you want to be. I believe as Christians, we need to 
take notice of each other. We need to encourage one another. We need to drop notes off to one another. This week, I left you a challenge in the family brief. I hope you'll take it up. There are other evangelical churches in the area that have faced issues with COVID as we have. There are other evangelical churches that face issues with people and illness in their own churches. And we need to be encouraging them. So I encourage you, drop a line to them. Send an email. Let them know you're praying for them. Of all the people that walk the face of the earth, Christians should be known as people who encourage one another and encourage others. Let's transition. We're going to transition now to the end of Philemon. So back in Philemon, starting in verse 23 and 24. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Now, Epaphras is probably a name you've heard before, because it too can be found in the book of Colossians, actually twice, and here in Philemon. So let's go back to the book of Colossians. This time you're going to go back to the book of Colossians to chapter 1. And I told you to keep your finger in it. So chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 7 and 8 really quickly. So chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He is Christ's faithful servant, and he is helping us on your behalf. He told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. Now flip over to chapter 4. Because he comes up again at the end of the book in verses 11 and 13. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Aeropolis. Well, what do we know about Epaphras? Well, we know that he was a hard worker. We know that he was a Gentile. And we know that he was from Colossae. And we also know that he was imprisoned with Paul. Now, whether that was in Rome or seemed like prisons were Paul's Airbnb. Um, but somewhere along the line, they spent some time behind bars. The scripture just doesn't exactly tell us where. Tradition tells us that, and we can read here, that his hometown was Colossae, and he returned later to that area of Colossae, Laodicea, and eventually he was martyred. But what do we know about Epaphras's character. Well, Epaphras was committed to Christ. He was willing to stay faithful. He was willing to pay a price, even if it meant prison. Colossians 1, 7 and 8. That was Epaphras who brought to the believers in Colossae the life-changing message of the gospel. See, in his own right, Epaphras was a church planter. He was planting seeds that God would use and that he would harvest and bring people to himself. And then he added them to the church. He was a a missionary 
to his own people. So as I thought of that, I, I looked up for a second, what's the definition of a missionary? Because I really think we get confused to what a missionary looks like and what a missionary is. You know something? Missionaries should look a lot like us. Or maybe I should say it, we should look a lot like missionaries. Here's the definition I came up with. A Christian missionary is commissioned by the Lord to make disciples. Followers of Christ, Jesus commands all Christians to share the gospel. The message of his death and resurrection that conquered the penalty and power of sin. And that is all based from Matthew chapter 28, 19, and 20. And let me read that to you. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now often that mandate is equated to the church. It's a church mandate. And then it shows up in church mission statements. It shows up in church vision statements. And so it should. But we need to ask ourselves the question, well, who makes up the church? Right. Individuals make up the church. So if you were to come to me and say, hey, pastor, I feel called to go to the mission field. I should feel I should be on the mission field. I would respond in a few ways. First, I'd tell you, you are on the mission field. I'm not sure how we fail to confuse this. We are on a mission field. So once you come to faith in Christ, your citizenship is transferred from this world to God's kingdom. Think back to our Easter services. There we discuss the parable of the ten minas, which you could find in Luke. If you want to, you can turn to Luke 19 or you can just follow along as I read. That was a parable that Christ told as he was making his way to um, the triumphal entry. As he was moving from Jericho up to Jerusalem, he told him this parable, the ten minas. Luke 19, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. That was about the equivalent of three months of wages. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. However, not everybody was thrilled that this was going to be their king. Verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Well, upon his return to receive his kingdom, he calls those ten servants in to give an account. Two of those servants had worked diligently, and they used the money earning more, and they were commended. One of them, more or less, hid that money in a sock drawer, and he was reprimanded, but but he was allowed to live. As for the other seven who refused to acknowledge the new king, well, they were put to death. All of this was a foreshadowing of the final judgment to come. We also talked about Walter Leefield, who did a great job of summing up these, this parable with three points. So the parable clarifies the time and the appearance of the kingdom of God. I've often spoke of the kingdom of God as being here but not yet. 
God rules in our hearts, but there's still a physical reign to come. Christ will rule one day literally on this earth, and we await for that. Secondly, it realistically portrays the rejection and future return of the Lord. It's a foreshadow of the events that were about to unfold as he made his way to Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, and the Passion Week, and the death on the cross and his resurrection. And thirdly, it delineated, and most importantly for us this morning, it delineated the role of the disciple in the in-between time, in between the Lord's departure and his return. Each of us have been given money and resources and talents to use on his behalf. So those resources we can either use selfishly or we can invest into the kingdom by investing in people's lives and using them for the Lord. Here we see a man who was using them for the Lord and he reached his town for Christ. Secondly, once I told you that you're on the mission field, then I would say this to you. I would ask, what are you doing now? You want to go on the mission field, what are you doing now? Because if you're not doing it here, if you're not being a beacon of light here, engaged in the world around you, and sharing the gospel message, why in the world would I ever believe I could give you money and send you somewhere else and you would do it there. You'd be crazy to send somebody somewhere if they weren't involved in gospel ministry here first. You and I are given the responsibility to carry the gospel message forward. One thing I brag this church up about from most of you That carrying the gospel message forward comes with no retirement age. I can't find it in Scripture. Where you say, I've done enough for God now. I can just sit in the service all the time. I've never seen that in Scripture. You and I are responsible for living a life that properly reflects the Savior and sharing the message of the gospel with others. That's our responsibility. Look again at the words used to describe the man. He was a faithful servant of Jesus. He was the hands and feet of of Colossae in Rome. Just as you and I are to be the hands and feet of Forest Baptist Church and the community around us, with our business associates, with our neighborhoods. I don't know your neighbors. You don't know my neighbors. But as you go to them, You are the hands and feet of this church as you get fed here and as they send you out to share the gospel message. Well, not directly speaking to Epaphras, I believe this speaks of the character of the man. If you recall back in uh, Colossians 1.8, he talks about, he speaks of the love that they have for others. See, the church had been taught to yield to the Spirit Allow the Spirit to work in their life and to grow love in their life. Loving others doesn't just come. It's not something, at least it's not easy for me all the time, especially with some people that are unlovely. And let's face it, there are some people in our world that are harder to love than others. 
But Epaphras was an example of what it meant to love others, and he had shared that with the church. Lastly, we learn that he was a man, well, these are Paul's words, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature. Always struggling on behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature. Not Lord bless grandma and grandpa type of prayer. Or Lord, and I'm guilty of this too, be with so and so and be with so and so. God's already promised that he would be with us in Matthew 28, 20. We just read it. I mean, the the term struggle comes from an athletic background. It, It means to wrestle with. It means a competition. Do we struggle in our prayer? Epaphras challenges us. He challenges us to pray. Do you and I struggle in prayer? Note, it's not, telling, it's not asking us, do you struggle to pray? That's another issue. Epaphras is commended for wrestling in prayer for the believers in Colossae. And the thrust of his prayer was what? The thrust of his prayer was maturity in Christ and assurance of God's will or desire for them. So when you pray for somebody in the church, whether it's, it's in the bulletin and you see it and you start praying for them or in the family brief or maybe you go through the church list at home, however you do it, when you're praying for one another, do you pray for wisdom for them? For maturity in their growth? Do you pray that they might grow in love and in joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? They're what God desires for us. Do we pray for those things? Now, it's fine. It's fine to pray, and there's nothing wrong with asking God to grant healing and health to somebody, or even to yourself, or to provide the need for your needs or the needs of others around you. But do we pray for people that they might grow in the fruit of the Spirit? Do we pray for ourselves that way, that we might grow in the fruit of the Spirit? When was the last time you went before the Lord and struggled in prayer that God would convict Lampton Shores of their sin. That God would convict your neighbors that He would open their eyes to their need for a Savior. It's the last time we struggled for people's salvation. Look back at the names again, verse 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Well, I'm not going to speak at any length this morning about the names that are familiar to most. The information on Mark and Luke would more than fill our time. But as a reminder, Mark is none other than John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, Barnabas's cousin. Dr. Luke is the author of both Acts and the Gospel of Luke. He's the only writer in the New Testament that we know is identified as a Gentile. So that leaves two people left for us. Aristarchus, Aristarchus 
And he shows up five times in Scripture. We know he's a Macedonian man who lived according to Acts 27, verse 2 in Thessalonica. We know that he was with Paul in Ephesus during the riot of Acts 19. We know that Aristarchus traveled with Paul as he went across Macedonia sharing the gospel with people. So he's involved in gospel ministry. But outside that, we know little of the man. We don't know how he was saved. We don't know what happened to him. There's a tradition that he became a bishop in Syria and then was later martyred under Nero. But there's nothing else about him. But he serves to remind us this. He reminds us that when we remain faithful to the Lord, we might not end up in the spotlight. And that's okay. He wasn't in the spotlight. He's very sort of vague as far as what we know. But he was no less important to the gospel ministry and what took place. What we do know of him sheds a little light on his character. We know that he was a team player. And we know that God used him. He was a team player and God still used him. Although he was not highlighted in anything. Well, that leaves us with Demas. His story plays out in the lives of many. It's not hard today to find people who are deconstructing their faith, who are walking away from Christ altogether. See, Demas was considered here to be a a co-worker. He was with Paul in Rome, serving while Paul was imprisoned. In time, Demas not only left Rome, but he leaves the faith altogether. Sometime after these letters were delivered, Demas up and walked away from it all. He deconstructed whatever he did. He's just had enough. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, and you can just listen to this. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmaeta. Luke is alone with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychius I have sent to Ephesus. See, Demas is a real-life example for us of the parable of the sower. If you want to, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Spend a few moments there. Matthew chapter 13. Starting in verse 3. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them out. And other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Demas' life... If if you're there, go down to verse 22, because Demas' life can be found in the explanation of the parable in verse 22. 
As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word out, and it proves unfruitful. See, the life of Demas serves as a warning to you and I. Warning is this. Past service is no guarantee of future faithfulness. Did you catch that? Past service is no guarantee of future faithfulness. I can think of when I was younger and I first went to Bible college and seminary. The excitement, the promise ahead. As a young man, I, I drank deeply from the Word of God in classes. I learned so much, and I couldn't put it all in practice as I was learning it. And I learned with another group of people. And as I look back now, so many of those that I went to school with no longer follow. I mean, not that they're not in, many of them aren't in ministry, and that's fine for one reason or another. But I'm talking about people who have completely deconstructed their life and walked away from Christ altogether. They've turned from Jesus. And there are others that have reconstructed, but they've reconstructed based on a false gospel, and they no longer follow Christ. In 1 John 2.19, we read this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that, they might be, that it might become plain they, are, they all are not of us. I will never give the assurance of salvation to a person that is not living with the Lord. Because our only assurance is the perseverance. Our only assurance is that we continue to live out our faith with Christ. No, that doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean that we don't have struggles. It doesn't mean that we don't have shortcomings. Otherwise, I'd be on the curb. But when your heart is transformed by Jesus Christ, following the Master is something that you just do. In the struggle you follow. In the pain you follow. You live a life that's culturally counter to the rest of, peop- the, rest of the people around you. Because you're living out the principles of His kingdom. And please, don't give up on those who walk away from the faith. They need people who will struggle in prayer on their behalf. They need people who will struggle and wrestle with God and say, Lord, please open their eyes. Allow them to see. They need the transforming power that comes only through true faith in Jesus Christ. And and let's not go down the comforting theological rabbit hole known as the backslidden believer. Don't let's not go there. Pray for that person, reach out for them as if they're not saved. Don't give them false assurance. Allow the Lord, allow God to handle whether they're really saved or not. You just have to go by what you see, and you want to see them encounter with Jesus Christ and for their lives to be transformed. Well, let's end with a contrasting figure as we begin to wrap up. Contrasting figure is one of our main characters from the letter, and it's Philemon himself. 
Well, what do we know about this man? Well, we know he lives in Colossae. He appears to you a man of some wealth. That brings us full circle back to the first part of Philemon. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Philemon is considered a beloved fellow worker in the gospel ministry. It's possible there's an indication that he holds some sort of leadership role in the church. We know that he hosts the church in his house. We know there's a strong bond of friendship between Philemon and Paul. But before we move on to the character of Paul or of Philemon, I want just to touch on the elephant in the room. We don't have enough time to deal with this this week, but we also know that Philemon owned a slave named Onesimus. We'll have to deal with that next week. So set that aside. But let's look at how Paul describes the character of him. Go down to Philemon chapter, or Philemon chapter, Philemon four, verse verse four through verse seven. I thank God always when I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of your faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Before diving into Philemon's character, I have one question. The question is this. Do we appreciate those that God has put around us? Do do we appreciate them? In the NLT, it states it this way. I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon. Imagine how Philemon felt when he read this. When you pray for people, do you thank the Lord that they're in your life? Possibly the first question should be, do you allow people close enough to you to impact your life? Don't live a life that's so closed-handed that God can't use others to impact you. That's why we live in relationship with one another. Well, what is Paul thankful for? Look at verse 5. And as you do, I want to point out that there's a chiastic structure. And I meant to make cards up for this. It's a literary, literary device, a chiastic structure. And, and the ESV, let's face it, doesn't do a good job with this. So if you can think of the letter A, that's part of a chiastic structure. He says something here, and then he says something different. So say A, B. And then right after that, it would be B1. No. B1, which relates to B, and then it would go A1, which would relate to A. And you'll see this as you follow me. I promise. Look at verse 5 with whatever translation, but if you have the ESV, it doesn't do a very good job with this. Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Okay, you got that? Because I hear of your love... And of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus for all the saints. So love actually goes with for all the saints. And faith goes with the Lord Jesus. 
Christian Standard Bible does a great job. Listen carefully and watch your whatever translation you have and you'll see how they put it together. Because I hear of your love for all the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. That's how it should read. Because I hear of your love for all the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. That's how they would have understood it in the original language. So even though Paul was on his missionary journeys all over the world, traveling, in jail and out of jail, and now sitting in prison in Rome, Philemon's reputation has come to his attention. Now remember, this was before TikTok videos and social media, no Facebook, so it wasn't like Philemon was bragging himself up. Someone would have to take the character of Philemon and say to Paul, hey, you know what Philemon's up to? You know what Philemon's like? Do you know what's been going on in his life? Philemon had a reputation for love for all the saints. And I find it interesting. The first thing he says is love. Love for others. You'll recall 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. See, without love, it's all meaningless. Do we really understand that? Without love, it is all meaningless. You can have the right, all the right doctrine. You can have all the right answers. You can have all the verses memorized that you want. You can be the church champion of Bible trivia. But without love, it's a big zero. You're just a bunch of noise. Philemon was known for his love. Paul also heard of Philemon's faith. His trust was in Jesus. Philemon wasn't trusting in his wealth, but he was choosing to trust Jesus Christ. That's what Paul had heard. Verse 6, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, this is another verse that can be easily understood. Well, I'm sure Philemon did his part for the Great Commission, the verse would be misunderstood and misrepresented if you thought the word sharing equated with evangelism. The, the root word for sharing there is the same root word that we use for fellowship. Gerald Peterman of Moody said the best translation was the NLT. It conveys Paul's thoughts. So here it is, verse 6. And I am praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Catch that? Philemon was known for what? He was known for his generosity. And it's that generosity that Paul wants him to put into action now. And where does that generosity come from? That big-heartedness, that kindness. Well, it came from his faith. True faith bears generosity, not pettiness, not stinginess. What a great reflection question. Does my life bear generosity? Do I have a spirit of generosity? Will people characterize me as generous? We're not talking about money. We're talking about a life that oozes of generosity. Generosity in your time for others. 
Generosity in giving people attention. Generosity in your love and your kindness. It encompasses all of who you are. Yes, hospitality would be closely linked with this. Someone who is a hospitable person. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. It was refreshing to be with Philemon. How to explain that? There are people that you meet and spend time with that wear you down, that tire you to be with. There and there are others that when you're in their presence, you feel refreshed. It's comparable. I grew up in the country, so I compare it to this. After doing some hard haying, somebody come out with some cool water or lemonade, and they pull the wagon off to the side of the field, and you get off the wagon, and you step underneath this big oak tree or big maple tree in the shade, and they hand you a cool glass of water. Philemon was refreshing to be around. It was refreshing to be in his presence. And Paul gained satisfaction for that. Knowing how Philemon treats people, knowing how Philemon interacts with people. Do people, do do you leave people's presence and do they feel refreshed for being with you? Do they know that you care, that you have given them your full attention? See, character matters, people. How we treat people, how we love people, how we deal with our differences No one feels refreshed in the presence of a judgmental, moody, unloving, petty person. Life is hard. Our journey is not always easy. We want to be known as people who refresh the souls of those around us. And my prayer is that as people come into Forest Baptist Church, they will leave feeling refreshed. And if they don't leave here feeling refreshed, then we have a problem. And I would say the same thing of people who call this home. I, overall, and I know it's not always easy living with one another. Heaven knows I tease Phil. But overall experience when you leave here should be one of feeling refreshed. And if you don't feel refreshed, then there's an issue and there's a problem. And it needs to be dealt with. It could be from the church perspective or it could be your own perspective. But it needs to be dealt with. So next time. You're reading through a passage. Don't skip over these names. You might not know them. Do some research. You never know what the Lord might challenge you with in your life. I take the morning that you'll look at some of these people and say, I want to be more like Philemon. I want to be more refreshing to people. I need to be involved in gospel ministry and to share his love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your love and your goodness. We thank you for the words. We thank you for lives of people that maybe only show up once and twice in Scripture and, and how we can investigate and look at them and how you've used them. And Father, we pray this morning that you will use our life, our life to refresh people and to bless people and to take the gospel message and to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ by the way we live and how we interact with one another. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.